Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time together to study your word as it applies to an area of our interaction with the people around us um, in society, those we know and those we do not. We pray that you would give us enlightenment through your word for a better understanding of how we might uh, reform this world and uh, be a, a blessing to those with whom we are in contact and we pray that you will uh, open our eyes to your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I um, gave you a, 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 what I hoped was an, a bit of an introduction last week to uh, what we are about in thinking about Christian thinking on economics. And that's uh, an area where we're, we're perhaps not accustomed to um, applying scripture, and yet it's an area in which we all are, uh, we're, we're, we're interacting with others in marketplaces and outside of marketplaces, and, and a lot of that has to do with uh, what, what I would call economics. And we, we looked last week at the um, implications of God's ownership of the world. That God created the world and therefore he owns it and we are stewards only. Everything that we have and everything that we are belongs to God whether we acknowledge that or not and therefore we need to pay close attention to what scripture says about how we are to use the resources given to us, uh, including our own bodies. And I, I mentioned as a, as a way of application the, uh, an excerpt from a book by the late economist Murray Rothbard who went to the extreme of individual ownership and sovereignty over one's own body. And I pointed out that he had a, a view of abortion that said that um, a, a, an unwanted fetus is simply a trespasser and can be kicked out at any time. And I said that a, a, uh, a biblical view of our bodies is that it's, these are God's bodies. and we, we are subject to his rules and his constraints on what we can and can't do with them. What I'd like to do today is, is, is maybe... Uh, get a little more practical with applications for um, marketplace activity, what we do in the, in, the, in the marketplace. And we have seen in the last um, year or two a, a resurgent debate, public debate over minimum wages. And so part of what I want to do with you this morning is, is talk about that a little bit and, and think about what Christians have said, rightly and wrongly, about wages and, uh, and, and prices. We, we con are confronted with these all the time. We're, we're thinking about um, you know, how much does something cost when we go to the store and um, you know, how much is this new job going to pay and should I 
uh, ask for a raise, or if you're in the position of an employer, you might be thinking, well, how much should I be paying my, my employees? Is there a biblical standard for this? Is there some way in which we can uh, bring scripture to light as, a, as Christian employers or as employees? And there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I'm going to pick on Tim Keller a little bit. I think I've gathered that's okay here, though he is. I get a thumbs up from the the rear there. So, uh, yeah, so um, he's a Reformed uh, pastor, and, and yet I've got some difficulties with some of the things he said about this. So a lot of people who try to argue about markets will try to divide workers from employers or divide buyers from sellers and, and treat them as though they're competing with each other. And they say, for example, that the, the seller has more power over a transaction than the buyer, or uh, that the uh, employer has more power over that employment arrangement than the employee, and that therefore, because of this disparate power relationship, that the seller should be restrained by government regulation or that the employer should be restrained by regulation to force the employer to behave in a certain way with regard to the employee. And so we get things like limits on prices, limits on uh, wages. We get uh, arguments that the government should impose minimum quality standards for their products and, and so forth. But both parties to a transaction are entering that transaction voluntarily with other options they could have taken. Both parties to a transaction are buyers and both parties are sellers, if you think about it. Um, working is buying money. And um, if I am uh, going to a, a store and buying something, I'm also selling my money to the grocery store. Uh, I'm, I'm on both sides of that transaction. There's a, there's a trade that's taking place there. And scripture says a few things about these kinds of transactions, and perhaps one of the better known parts is from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, uh, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These 
Last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I think the main lesson of that is that um, some are called to salvation, effectively called very late in life. And so we, we have those who perhaps on their deathbed are converted and others who were converted as children and live a long life thereafter and uh, they, they both receive salvation. Um, but it's interesting to me here that it's assumed the employer may offer any wage and it need not be equal to the wages paid to others. But the idea of a just price or just wage is something that the church has struggled with for centuries, maybe thousands of years, really. Um, the, the idea that there is a, a right wage and a right price and that that is something that can be determined outside of the agreement between the worker and the employer. Um, God has not forbidden unequal wages. He has not given us a specific wage or price that is just and anything over that or under that is, is out of bounds. We, we, we're, not, we're not given that. We are, we are left with Christian liberty here. Um, if God has not forbidden it, it is permitted, and he has not forbidden unequal wages. But a lot of people still hold on to this ancient error of uh, just prices and just wages. And so Tim Keller, in his book, Ministries of Mercy, one of his older books on diaconal ministry, has a, uh, uh, under heading, Three Causes of Poverty, the following. Oppression is any social condition or unfair treatment that brings or keeps a person in poverty. Delayed or unjustly low wages, and he cites Ephesians 6, 8 through 9 here, court and government systems weighted in favor of the great and wealthy, Leviticus 19, 15, and high interest loans, Exodus 22, 25 through 27, are examples of oppression. And he says, much more recently, this is an article that I read either earlier this year or late last year, um, called A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory, says, he says, uh, Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.14 through 15 speak of unfair wages. No, they don't. It's important not to twist scripture to say something that it does not say and to try to pull something out of scripture that it's not saying, it's not there. 
So let's think about this. Let's, let's look at the scriptures that Keller mentions and see what it says, right? He just puts these citations in there, and I'm guessing 97% of the people who read his article are not going to look. Let's look. So he said, um, Leviticus 19.13, uh, 19.15, um, I take it back. Um, he mentions Ephesians 6, 8 through 9 on uh, delayed or unjustly low wages. And I've got that here. Yes. Okay. So he, he mentioned Ephesians 6, 8 through 9 first. Let's go back to verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I'm looking for delayed or unjustly low wages there. I didn't see anything about that. Okay. I, maybe you did. No, I didn't see anything. Okay. Here's Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And notice this says nothing about the amount of the wage. It's about holding back what was promised, delaying payment. So Keller's right that delayed wages can be an example of oppression. Yes? Right. These are, these are day laborers who are counting on each day's wages to pay for each day's food. And when that, when that is held back, uh, when the employer doesn't give at the end of the day what was promised, um, that's, that's hurtful to that. And that was not the understanding implicit in daily labor arrangements of that time. The arrangement was you, you work for the day, and at the end of the day you get paid, and then you can go buy food and eat. Um, so holding that back when it was promised is, is, is uh, a problem. But there's nothing here about unjustly low wages. There's nothing about the amount of the wage at all. In fact, I'm not seeing that anywhere in Scripture, the amount of the wage. So... Um, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 is similar to this. We see, you shall not oppress a hired servant 
who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Now, this use of the term unfair wages to describe what Scripture has said here is a kind of a verbal sleight of hand. It says something about wages, so we're just going to apply this. We're going to say it's about unfair wages. It's not about unfair wages. It's about the unfair payment or timing of the payment of the wages, which Scripture was very clear about. Pay that day laborer every day. Now, uh, one's kind of sidetrack here. Does that mean that today in society we ought to be, if we're an employer, we ought to be paying our workers every day? Um, I, I don't think so. And I think because we see this, for he is poor and counts on it. That's, that, we're given a reason for that daily payment. For he is poor and counts on it. Most workers today are not going to go hungry at night if they don't get paid at the end of the day. If that is the situation with an employee, I could see, yes, you, you know, you pay that worker every day. Um, but if that worker's not going to be going hungry because you chose to pay every week or every two weeks or every month even, um, then that's a different matter. Uh, so I, I, would not, I would not say that that command today specifies that instead of I, I get paid once a month, does that mean that I'm being oppressed? I, no, I don't think so. Um, and so my main point here is that we should not try to make Scripture say something that we wish that it had said but did not actually say. Um, there may be a lot of ways in which we wish the Bible said things that agree with our preconceived notions of what is just and right. And it just, Scripture is not going to oblige us in our efforts to take authority over Scripture. It's, it's just not. So, I'm afraid, I'm afraid Keller here is, is stretching to the breaking point what Scripture actually says. He also mentioned toward the end of the, that selection from Ministries of Mercy, um, high-interest loans. Usury, yes. So um, that's what we think of when we think of usury as high-interest loans. Is that what Scripture means by usury? Does Scripture say anything about the level of interest? Now, that, this, if you think about it, this is kind of like a price, you know, you're, you're paying so that you can have the use of money for a while. And there are many reasons that people might borrow. They might borrow out of desperation. They might borrow because they're trying to start a business. They might borrow because uh, when you're younger and you have lots of kids in the house, you need a bigger house, but you borrow so that you can have the big house now to accommodate the larger family and then you pay that off over a lengthy period of time. I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons that people might borrow money. But what does scripture say about the interest payments? If, if, give back sevenfold if, if something what conditions, in other words, would be applied to the giving back sevenfold? 
Oh, that's okay. That's okay. We'll we'll get we'll we'll get there. Um, but but I, there is a there is a case where where Scripture says you know give back sevenfold what you took in in interest. But let's think about that difference between interest and and usury. Uh, Exodus twenty two. 25 through 27 speaks to lending. And keep in mind what's, what I'm picking on Keller here. So what's, what's Keller say? He says, high interest loans are examples of oppression. And he mentions Exodus 22, 25 through 27. So here's Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is, it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Where does it say anything about the amount of interest? High interest, low interest, what, what guidance do we see here about the amount of the interest? Zero. It's not about whether it should be 5% or 15% or 100%. Zero. To whom? Any of my people with you who is poor. Charitable loans to fellow believers are zero interest, not high interest. Any interest. And if you charge interest, on a charitable loan to a fellow believer, pay back sevenfold because you've done wrong. Also, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37, um, on interest. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, any interest, any interest, nor give him your food for profit. Is it wrong to sell food for profit? No. But it's also commanded that we be charitable to those uh, who, who are in poverty. So the prohibition on interest is not interest over a certain level, unless that level is just zero. I mean, and it's not to, it's not any and all interest on any and all loans. It's interest of any amount to those within the covenant. Interest was allowed on loans to those outside the covenant, and I would argue it's allowed to, to loans that are not of a charitable nature. Somebody's not borrowing money because they don't have anything to eat that day. They're borrowing money because they want to start a business. I, I would argue that's a different type of loan than what's, what's discussed here. So, um, Deuteronomy, sorry, Bob? 
Oh, always, always welcome. Yeah. Now there is a way to decide who this actually is. Right. Yeah. So Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20 says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So the context in which this is, is written is, is you've, you've got people that may be coming to you. Uh, if you're a, a person with means, you've got resources, and someone comes to you and says, look, I've got nothing for my family for the next week, and I'm working, but I, I haven't, it's, I haven't got it. I'm going to be homeless, or um, I've got my rent check is due, and I have nothing. Then, if you make a loan to that person, you make that loan with no expectation of any any interest. You can expect to get paid back, um, but no interest. So when Keller, I, I think he's he's saying here that. Well, he does say high interest loans are examples of oppression, and that's that's not really what Scripture is, is saying um, here. So we need to be careful, I would say, with what it says and what it doesn't. There's a there. I'm picking on Keller because he makes himself a little bit of an easy target here, but there are a lot of cases where Christians have fallen into this, and they say, well. You know, if the government makes a law that runs all of these pawn shops and, and uh, check advance places out of business, then good. They deserve it. Well, um, you know, let, if, if, we, if we have government imposing upper limits on interest above, let's say, 20% or 30% or whatever, that's not what Scripture says. If you're going to impose an interest limit at all, it would need to be on charitable loans to fellow believers, and the limit would have to be anything over zero. So another, uh, you know, another question that I'm not really getting into in here is there are, there are there's sinful behavior that is not necessarily criminal behavior, and that's, that's another discussion for another day, maybe. But it, just because Scripture says don't do it doesn't mean that the civil government, the civil magistrate, then has a responsibility to deal with that. So maybe it's one of those sins that's a sin but not a crime. I mean, if I, if I fail to tithe, I am stealing from God. But is it the civil magistrate's responsibility to lock me up or something if I fail to to tithe. I mean, so there's that difference there, which I'm, I'm not really addressing about what role the civil government has in, in handling cases where there is an unjust uh, oppression of, of someone who is poor. Um, I'll leave that as an open question for now. Um, let's think about those employee-employer relationships. Again, something that our, our society is trying to deal with. Um, what 
obligations does an employer have toward an employee? What em obligations does an employee have toward an employer? And so there's, again, some confusion, I think, on this in Christian circles. Um, employers are not in a position of authority, covenantal authority, in the same way that an elder in a church is or that a father in a home is. The relationship between an employee and employer is a contractual relationship. It is not a covenantal or coercive relationship. I don't mean to conflate covenantal and coercive, but it, it's not the same relationship that a civil magistrate has with you. And it's not the same relationship that your church elder has with you. It is voluntarily entered into on both sides. I agree I'll show up 40 hours a week and I'll do this and that and the other thing for you and you, will, you agree on the other hand to pay me X amount for showing up and doing this work. And I can back out of this and you can back out of this and we approach this as peers in that relationship. And yet we see sometimes an effort to, f and I, I applaud the effort, but it, it, it can be a little um, misguided sometimes, the effort to, to look to Scripture and try to find some kind of employer-employee relationship and then, and then uh, and, and get guidance from it. So an example would be 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. And I'll also look later um, in, at Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. 1 Peter 2, 18, 18 through 20 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And we see something similar here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. I read this earlier. Uh, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Um, so is this an employee-employer relationship like what many of us are in today? No. I mean, this is a... Many of those in the early church were gathering as being in, in an inextricable relationship with another person as a master or slave. Well, a master could extricate himself if he, if he wanted but the slave was stuck. And the question now is, how do I behave as a slave? Do I, and I'm, I'm in this unjust situation, how do I respond? How do I act? And then 
there may have been some of those in the church who were in the position of, of master, and how, how do they behave? Step number one would be stop beating people unjustly. That, that, that would be, you know, baby steps here, but that, that'd be one, one thing to, to, to start with. And, um, you know, maybe we could, you know, eventually, <laughs> hopefully, get a little further than that, but that would be, that would be uh, the instructions given to the, to the early church. This is not the same kind of relationship as what we would in, be engaged in today as an employee or an employer. I'm a peer in that relationship. I can leave the uh, employment if I, if I want. My employer can fire me if my employer wants. So these are, um, it, 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 we're limited somewhat in our ability to apply that master-slave instruction to an employer-employee in, uh, relationship. I would say that a, a, an employment relationship today is, is more of a, a contract, uh, which is a voluntary promise of mutual performance usually enforceable by the civil magistrate. I agree to do this, you agree to, to do that. If either of us break that contract, then the other can haul that person to the, into the courtroom and say, all right, civil magistrate, who's, who's in the wrong here? So some of these contracts are written out in great detail, some of them are common, common understandings that anyone entering into this relationship would understand that this is part of that relationship, and so it's not necessary to spell out every detail. But as Christians, we should be promise keepers, right? So we should be keeping our promises to, uh, to others that we voluntarily make. Um, I, you know, I, I work at a college. I'm not um, bound to sign my contract year after year after year. I can choose not to if I, if I like. It's a voluntary relationship. But under a voluntary employment contract, an employee is to keep his promises and submit to the authority of the employer insofar as that employer has been granted that authority. It's possible in a contract to limit, and often, usually, it is limited. I'm, uh, the employer has no right to do whatever he likes to the employer, uh, employee. He has to stay within the terms of the contract. He cannot promise one thing and do another to the detriment of the employee. That would be deception and fraud, and the same goes for the employee. The assumption is, for a voluntary contract, that both parties understand it and agree to it, that there's no deception involved, uh, that both parties understand the promises they're making, and because it's voluntary, it's typically a good assumption that entering into the contract is something you do thinking that that's gonna make you better off. You may be wrong, I mean, you might have made that contract in error, thinking that this was going to be a good deal when it's not. If that's the case, you can 
you can um, uh, not renew the contract. Um, so who, who, who would agree to something they know is going to make them worse off if they've got another option? So as bad as an employment deal might appear, if the employee accepts the deal, it's clear that the employee thinks, I'm not going to be as bad off signing the contract as I would if I didn't sign the contract. So I want to pick on Keller one more time before we, <laughs> before we let him loose. Um, let's think about exploitation, because that's com a word commonly tossed around when it comes to employees, employers. In, again, his book, Ministries of Mercy, Keller says, a church discovered that one of the reasons so many elderly in the community lived in or near poverty was that the main employer in town provided retirees with a dismally small pension. Should Christians discuss with the corporation its unfairly low benefits? And he quotes or cites Jeremiah 22:13 here. We'll look at that. The corporation may be full of well-meaning, good citizens, even Christians, and no individual there intends to gouge poor elderly people. Yet can we say that the corporation is not guilty of evil? And can we tell individuals that they are to some degree involved in the guilt? The answers to both are yes. So he mentions Jeremiah 22:23. It says, woe to him who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Uh, what was it Keller said? Uh, uh, unfairly low benefits. Jeremiah 22:23 says, gives him nothing for his work. Is it, what's... What is there here about the level of benefits? I mean, I mean again, we're, we're he, he's, he's, I think he's, I'm, this is not terribly charitable, but I'm, I think he's got a commitment to some other agenda, and he's trying to get some proof texts out of Scripture for it, and it's, it's not working. Um, the company's not bound to provide any pension at all. I've had jobs that had no, no retirement provision whatsoever. You get dollars. What you choose to do with the dollars, whether you save for retirement or not, you spend it all on lottery tickets, that's your decision. We just give you the dollars. You decide what you want to do with that. Um, there's, again, we, we need to be careful not to try to press Scripture into the service of some other agenda that it's not not serving. So an employer should pay the agreed-upon compensation for their workers, but that agreement does not have to include a pension. Maybe, maybe the person's getting paid higher wages and not getting a pension, whereas someone who did get a pension might have lower wages. Lower wages plus pension, higher wages plus no pension. I mean, some people might regard those things as equivalent, depending on what the employer or employee wants. Uh, now, maybe, maybe 
Keller didn't say, and maybe the company that he is um, upset with here agreed to pay a pension and then didn't fund it, that would be a problem, morally and legally, um, but maybe not. Uh, so are employers required to pay us a wage su uh, sufficient for basic human needs? We hear this term living wage thrown around. Um, I'm not real sure what a living wage is. If you're making minimum wage in the United States, you are in uh, something like the, well, you're in the top half at least of the worldwide average wage. So it kind of depends on what borders you draw around your your pay, but um, is an employer required to pay a wage sufficient for some kind of arbitrary standard of living? Do we see this anywhere in scripture? Again, my, my argument is not that, that employers shouldn't, if they want, pay a wage that's higher than what is normal. They, they can do that if they, if they like, but let's not try to drag scripture in where it does not say what we think it says. Um, there's no requirement here about the terms of the contract, an employment contract. Uh, workers are not required, or employers are not required to pay a certain, a certain wage. And I'm afraid that, that Keller and maybe some others have, have um, twisted what, what scripture has actually said. I hope I'm not being un, un, unfair uh, to Keller, but uh, it's, it's something that I've seen for years in Christian circles is this kind of effort to, to make a social gospel out of, out of Scripture. I am out of, out of time, but I, I do have, I think, a minute or two if you've got any questions or comments or complaints. or <laughs> Yes, Bob. Thank you. Next question. But <laughs> you know what's coming. Uh, there, there are problems where this peer-to-peer worker-employer kind of falls apart. And I'll give you um, situations like coal mining in Pennsylvania. And there's this old song, I owe my soul to a company store. Um, they're not, it's why people think they need unions. The other example down here further south is if, if you can work, you can consider that the plantation system is an employee-employer relationship, which in a sense is what it's needed. You mean like sharecropping? No, I'm talking about you're on the plantation, you are a Actual slavery. Oh.
Uh, I would say, thinking about the disparate power, um, what when people bring up that kind of company store, the the town, the big town employer, if you don't work for them, you're not working. That's it's a a a, a, a I hope I'm using the word correctly. A trope, a kind of a it's a. It doesn't apply very much to what we actually see today, and I'm not real sure it applied even when we think it applied back in the days when you might have had a textile mill that implied uh, that employed 80% of the people in town. The I think the basic point you're 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 getting at is is that if you are in a situation where there is only one possible employer, you have very little choice, and therefore that peer-to-peer -peer relationship is not, it's, the employer has the ability to say, take it or leave it. Yeah. And, and um, you, you take whatever you, you get, and that's it. Um, even, even there, I would say, if you've got the ability to pick up and move, you can find other employers. Um, I'm not suggesting that there are never cases where that might not that might might not be the case, but I would say that that's less common than is than the than the situation is brought up in conversation about employer-employee relationships. Doctor, you had a. Um, I would. I'm I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna beat marks up later. We'll 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 do that. We'll do that. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time. We pray that you would instill your word in our hearts and help us to think more carefully about these issues. That you will go with us now as we and be with us now as we seek to worship you aright. And we pray that you would um, open our our hearts to uh, what you have to say to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.